Hey everyone, I'm Trish the Dish and welcome back to the Gen X Voice podcast, where I use my voice to help others share their voice from different backgrounds, experiences, and generations. Let's celebrate our differences instead of fearing or isolating others because of them. This week's guest is one of my dear old pals from my undergrad days in Flagstaff. We've lived together in Flagstaff and New York City and have visited each other over the years in Austin and Phoenix and even ran into each other randomly in London. She shares with us what it was like growing up an hour away from New York City, how she came into starting her own business as an acupuncturist, and together we try our best to describe the rave scene that was started in our generation. We even pontificate a bit about how living in New York City during 9-11 affected us both. Oh yeah, I used pontificate. Let's, let's, let's spice up our conversations, shall we? Oh, and I, I mentioned she is my oldest friend that I've had on the podcast, but if you were listening to last week's episode, you may be asking why I didn't count Joe, who I have known from Yucca Valley High School. So even though Joe and I did did know each other in high school and even went to a Harry Connick Jr. concert together our senior year, we didn't maintain a friendship all these years like Jill and I did. But I'm stoked that we are pals again in our midlife, but this is a fairly recent occurrence with Joe and me. So again, I want to let you all know that I would really like to hear what you think of guests and topics like this. A great place to do that is in the Gen X Voice Facebook group. The group is a great place to discuss the episodes and other random topics throughout the week and with other listeners of the show. We've been having a blast posting about our favorite movies, how we listen to music, and the recent photo a server posted on TikTok that showed two different tables at the end of their meal from two different generations. Or maybe you want to ask me, why have I been putting ads in for other podcasts? By the way, since one of you did ask, I wanted to let you know um, why I'm doing that. So I thought it would be great to insert these ads to not only support some of my podcaster pals, but also to introduce you to some shows you may be interested in. So if you haven't done so already... Get out your phones right now and search Gen X Voice in Facebook and like the page. Once you've done that, I will send you a personal invitation into the group for all the intimate stuff I referred to a second ago. Come join us. There's lots of generations in on the conversations from boomers, millennials, Gen X, and Gen Z. Oh, and as always, check the show notes for links to my website to find all my social media and links to music and other things that are referred to in each episode. Oh, and one more thing. Uh, Jilly Mac and I get down with some seltzers and vodka. So if you're into it, mix yourself a cocktail and enjoy the show. And I'll see you in the Facebook group. Hi, Jill. Hi, Trish. How are you? I'm feeling pretty good today. Good. So you just told me that you, um, you're you only about four or five minutes away from your office, and isn't it freezing cold in Connecticut right now? You know, it's super warm. It's 43 degrees out. <laughs> Whoa. That's like unheard of, you know, in January. So I was feeling really lucky. It's raining instead of icing right now, but it's still cold, and I have no desire to take walks or anything like that. So it's kind of a good excuse to walk home and yeah, get, no, get set I, up real fast with a with a cocktail because we're both drinking some La Croix and some vodka today while we record. How's the La Croix over there? Oh, the La Croix is delicious. Actually, I've got to I, – I have to admit this. It's actually a Whole Foods brand 365 seltzer uh, grapefruit, but it's actually pretty good. It's maybe not as – Fizzy as LaCroix La or LaCroix, depending on where you're from. Trish, I have 365 lime today, but I prefer the grapefruit. <laughs> oh, and okay, so what kind of vodka are you drinking oh, with that? Well, I kind of have settled into this Kirkland. I get the Costco brand vodka, but I went somewhere different and I got this weird organic vodka called 
hope. And I made a lot of jokes about that on New Year's Eve when I was drinking Pope Bond. <laughs> that was the only kind of hope that I had in my life, you know? Uh, That's but, awesome. But right now I've got the hope and the 365 Lime going strong. Sweet. I've got Tito's because Tito's is not only vegan friendly, but it's also um, very supportive of, um, I think it's dogs, dog shelters or something like that. I mean, I'd have to look again, but I just saw that and was like, okay, these guys are, these. this is my vodka. And I get a handle and that is just, it's cheap, it's easy and... It supports us. It's good for the you know, community, I think. Yeah. So I'm going to tell the listeners the reason why I feel comfortable having a cocktail with you as a guest is because you are the oldest pal, um, as in time frame, not age, um, that I've had on the show so far. So Jill, you and I have known each other since 1996. I think so. I think 1996. Yeah. And, um, and for the listeners, I mean, cause if it's not obvious, dear listeners, um, what year were you born and what I, and what generation do you most identify with Jill? I'm 1975. And even though I'm a Gen Xer, I honestly think in a lot of ways I identify with millennials. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and you're not the first. You're not the first Gen Xer to to say that. And but this is what I think. I think that is it that you identify with millennials or is it just that we are such a young-hearted generation or even more so is it because be, being born in 1975 we are at the tail end of Gen X mm. and right at that cusp called mm-hmm. Zennial that is sort of Gen X and millennial. Mm. B. I'm choosing B. I'm choosing B too. I love to think that we're just a young generation, just full of um, being open-minded. And 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 I want to tell the listeners that you're kind of you were always a little bit ahead of me in in a lot of things, technology, um, music, um, fashion, all kinds of things. So when we met. You So we met in Flagstaff in our undergrad years at NAU, and you had moved from Connecticut, and I had already lived there a couple years, but we we met up because of, geez, I don't even know how we met. Wasn't it housing? Didn't you move into Sublet Scrappy's room or something? Oh, yes. And how did I meet? Because I met Sue first, right? What about... Ben and um, did you know him? Sue? I knew them. Uh, it must have been through Angelica. It, there somehow through Angelica, I met you and all of these other people. And Angelica is who I lived with in her house with Emily okay. um, on San Francisco Street the summer that I decided instead of going back to Joshua Tree that I would stay in Flagstaff and work two jobs and every single day except for Sunday, like 18-hour, 20-hour days. <laughs> Angelica has influenced a lot of people. I feel like my career is because of Angelica, like my entire you know, life change. Right, because she used to take the two of us to go see our beloved uh, Jerry, who I used to call Dr. Kwok, yes. because he, that's, what, that's his last name, guys. Um, but he was our Chinese herbalist slash slash acupuncturist and we the three of us used to go about once a week twice a week I wish I wanted to go that much I don't remember going that much but he was just awesome yeah he used to do like a sliding scale for a starving college students like yes, he did. sometimes I'd pay five bucks sometimes nothing and um and so how did he change your life Jill um, so I had Bell's palsy. I had facial paralysis senior year of, of college. And I went to all these doctors. I went to all these specialists. And then I ran into Jerry in the street one day. And he said, you have the wind stuck in you. I can get rid of that. Come see me when you want to get better. And I was like hopelessly depressed and young and vain and couldn't take it anymore. And it was the only positive thing 
you know, the only hope anyone had given me, I went and made the first available appointment and literally started to get better in 24 hours. It was crazy. Wow. That is crazy. And then that sort of just put you on this path of, um, homeopathic and acupuncture medicine, all Eastern sort of, um, medicine, correct? Definitely. Yeah. Um, which is where you're at right now recording is actually in your, um, self-started acupuncture business there in Connecticut, right? Correct. Do you want to plug your acupuncture business for those who might be in the area? Oh, sure. West Hartford Acupuncture. We've been in business here 12 years. And And every year we treat more patients than the year before. And I love it. I actually love what I do and I want to do it till I'm old like Jerry Kwok. No offense, Jerry. Well, he is like in his 80s now, right? Yeah. 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 Um, I think that's so rad. And, you know, as far as finding a career path that you have passion for and love for, um, that really is like so Gen X slash millennial of you. Um, and I just want to applaud you because I don't know if I've ever told you how super proud and stoked I am that you were able to um, follow that path. And so successfully, like how many patients do you see per month or should we say week or year? What's a better number for you to quote or? Ooh, I actually did numbers recently because we're in January and every January I like to look and see how many people I treated the year before. So it was about 2000 treatments I did last year. And uh, I, I, I was pretty excited and that was with COVID. So with the shutdown, but I feel like I literally can't do acupuncture. You know, I can't not do it for that long. I just start doing it without meaning to even, you know, over the shutdown. But I will say this to finding a career that you love and all that jazz. I made a lot of mistakes and went down a lot of different roads and started it way later in life. So nobody ever think that you can't have it or, you know, whatever, because definitely it took me a long time to get here where I am, where I do love what I do and want to do it forever. Right. Um, Our guest um, in the episode before yours with Joe, um, he and I had a conversation about how as Gen Xers, we really kind of took our time um, figuring out what we wanted to do and, and really created these sort of um, creative paths to our careers. And instead of like, okay, you graduate, you go to college, you get the career, you get married, you know, do all the things kind of in this linear path, whereas Gen X kind of went all around upside down. And, um, and because what I think is really cool is one of the pathways that you took until you got to acupuncture was you were a part of, um, cause I went and visited you in New York city or actually, no, this is when we lived together in New York city. You were in the heart of New York city during the dot com era. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, so what were you doing exactly during that time in New York? It has been fun to be a part of like all these different, you know, eras and things. But anyway, so my first job after NAU where I met you was at a dot com. And, you know, I, w- I had a little help getting hired from Craig. Remember Craig? Um, of course I, I do. I was in love with him for a minute. And um, it was it was awesome. So I had studied art and graphic design and I wanted to be a graphic designer at a publication in New York. And I got hired at this dot com, which wasn't a publication, but I was working in this big warehouse, in, not a warehouse, but a loft in NoHo type thing, you know, a big, beautiful, airy office. I and feel like I remember um, visiting you at that office. Sure. I, I love to. I didn't have that much to do, honestly. You know, when they it was the doc, I got one good year in and then everything started to implode. It was, you know, the days of inflation and everyone was spending so much on websites that it wasn't. What year, what year was that? Yeah. What, it must've been 2000. It was 2000. I graduated 99, got my first job 2000. By 2001, the company went out of business, I think. Um, right. I that's when I moved in with you. Um, cause I moved in with you around May of 01 
And you were already starting to do freelance work instead of working in that office, right? Oh, so you got me when I was in between because I went from doing freelance and then I did find another gig um, downtown on John Street, kind of by by Ground Zero, actually, what became Ground Zero. Oh, right. Oh, maybe that's where I remember your office being. Might be. Yeah, that makes more sense. I the um I don't I didn't have that. Well, I got that apartment that you stayed at at the end of oh, that was part of my anxiety. I got the fabulous apartment when I had that great job and then when I was laid off, I had, you know, that expensive rent and everything and I started publeting it quite a bit. Um and that was that was very stressful. But. Yeah, and and for those who may be familiar with New York City, this was off of Houston and Attorney. And I'm going to tell you something. I in all the places I've ever lived, only the places I lived, the cross streets in New York City, do I remember. And oh well, maybe one or two in 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 Illinois and Flagstaff. But really, that's how you would explain to people where you lived in New York city. It's like, Oh yeah, you take the F train and then I'm off of like state. And you know what I mean? Like, it's so weird um, to think of, but that apartment, and by the way, thank you so much for housing me. It was a studio apartment with a fire escape. And um, that was like, I, I don't even think you had an air conditioner when I first moved in with you. I'm sure I didn't. That seems yeah. very fancy to me, an air conditioner. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which if you <laughs> listeners, if you don't know, New York City gets so hot and so humid. Oh man, those and summers. Fifth floor. <laughs> oh yeah. And did we even have an elevator? No, it was a fifth floor walk up. So you would be sweaty. By <laughs> and Trish like lived on the fire escape, cultivating a garden out there. It was- oh, I tried. Where are you outside on the fire escape? Oh my God. I loved fire escapes and being on rooftops when I lived in New York city. Like when I moved in, you then got me um, uh, uh, to live with your friend Meow and uh, Michael, I think his yeah, name was. Park. Yeah, Michael Parks, and um, in Chinatown, and that, that was also like a fifth floor walk up in this old brick. And but we always were up on the roof, and it was so amazing because that was um, so my windows faced the Twin Towers in that apartment. And before 9-11, it was just so much fun. We'd always go up on the roof and hang out. And, like, no one clo- no one uses curtains in that part of New York City. So, like, people would just have their windows open and they'd have, like, you know, sexy time. And we'd be <laughs> like, oh, my God, they're doing it. But we can't go away. Yeah, you see so much in that city. You just see so much. But I love that you, you know, when you were there that you you got into the rooftop scene and the fire escape scene because it's a whole different view of the world and it's so beautiful. It's like addictive. Once you Yes. them <laughs> to seeing a roof, then you start to wonder how the roof is in every building you visit. <laughs> oh my gosh, still to this day, I'm like, how do I get on that roof? <laughs> I tried to get on someone's last month. (laughs) (laughs) They're in Connecticut. Yeah. My friend has an apartment and he's like on the fourth floor or the third floor. And I, I, he was, they were working on his building and the, the front entrance is closed. So the only entrance when I visited him was, was the fire escape, which is, it's a nice one. It's like stairs in the back, but, um, you know, so I had to enter that way. And I noticed after I got to his place that there was, you know, a ladder heading up another floor. And I was, I really wanted to see what it was like up there. And I was shocked, <laughs> shocked that he'd lived there for many years and never was dying to see it. You know, um, I, I didn't ultimately end up up there because it is winter. It is icy. And um, the, the last ladder that went up that final stage was like behind, so I would have had to like climb over an air compressor. <laughs> And oh, wow. A little dangerous. <laughs> summer. In the summer, I'll try. Summer is more the roof time anyway, you know? Yeah, 100%. Yeah. So um, so in saying that, like, uh, you actually grew up about an hour outside of New York City. 
um, in the 70s and 80s and into the 90s as a teenager before heading over to Flagstaff. What was it like growing up in um, within such proximity to such a dynamic city? Um, you know what? It was I, now looking back, I want to say it was awesome. But at the time, at the time growing up, I always was really jealous I didn't live in New York, <laughs> which maybe that happens to everyone who lives in a proximity of New York, honestly. And then um, the the next big surprise, so we went there quite a lot because you could just hop a train and be there in 60 minutes. And, um, you know, in those days, trains were pretty affordable and you could go whether you were skipping school, nobody checked, you know? So, oh, and, and on a hold the phone, um, you're saying to our listeners that you would get on a train unsupervised to the city by yourself? Oh, yeah. That was so fun. I mean, like, basically all my guy friends were mugged in New York as teenagers. Like, it was a thing. Wow. Yeah, for sure. That was the old days. Like, Times Square was still full of peep shows, and everyone was trying to sell us a fake ID in those days. Like, anywhere you went. And, and that's that way before Disney came and just whitewashed the yeah, hell out of it. So ridiculous. It was and Giuliani. So, it was so dangerous in Times Square. And we always went straight. I mean, I guess that's just what kids do. You always go straight to the worst area and look for the fake ID, right? Like that was often a mission of ours. Um, I mean, you say that, but that's not what the youth do anymore. <laughs> it's not, is it? It's not. You know what? Uh, to be honest, though, I actually did go in and go to museums quite a bit. I don't know if the youth do that either. So um, I tell you, if I would have lived um, in New York City and um, I would have gone to all the museums because I remember, you know, my close city to me in high school was Los Angeles and Gosh, I love the museums like the Norton Simon Museum. And when I lived in New York City, oh, man, I went to the Whitney, the Guggenheim. Or wait, is that the same place? No. Okay, good. Sorry, it's been just so long at this point since I lived there. Um, And the MoMA, oh, my God, the MoMA was free like once a week and I would go. Oh, my gosh. That's so great you took advantage of that. So, yeah, we lived such a different life back then. It was exciting for me to even go to New York and just be in Washington Square Park for two hours and listen to buskers. And um We used to run into problems when my friends could drive and when we drove to New York because there were pay tolls and we didn't have ways (laughs) to like find your way around it. Or or digital money. Like you had to make sure you arrived with cash. You you needed quarters a lot of the time or you had to go in a special lane. And it was not uncommon for me and my friends to you know, have spent our money on gas or food or whatever and not have literally not have enough money for the toll to go home and have to ask other cars for a quarter. What? You did that? You would like lean out of your car and be like, hey, yeah. Oh, wow. We'd get out and be like, excuse me. So sorry. (laughs) I think about that now. And it's just such a different world now. I mean, I'm a 45 years old, my, my car battery ran out the other day and I could not get a person to help me. And I feel like in those days, it wasn't unusual to ask people for help or to get help from people. And these days we're all terrified of strangers. And, um, I mean, even pre COVID I'm talking pre COVID. Um, but in those days, you know, I don't know. I think about that a lot about how much I put myself in these positions and what kindness and generosity I got. And I, I also think, like, is that because I was white? Is it because I was, like, an, a 16-year-old girl? Or is it and, that... Or, or I'll say it, Jill, for you, because yeah. I know how modest you are. Or was it because you were so cute? Oh, thank you. <laughs> um, or, but I also feel, I feel like those played into it. But I also feel like the community was more, we were more open back then. Right. And that's so ironic that you're saying that because... Um, in the olden days, um, everyone used to say that New Yorkers were so cold and mean and, um, actually that's not necessarily true. Um, it's more that they just don't want to take a whole bunch of time to help you. (laughs) Am I right? That is so well said. That is so well said. Yes. I, time is everything. Yeah. So don't come up to a New Yorker with like, 
hey, how are you? Like your laid back West Coast self be like, hey, do you know where this is? Right. And they're so kind. I never had a mean inter- interaction with a New Yorker. Um, okay, but I want to ask, how is it that you discovered, um, we used to call it electronica or electronic music and the rave scene. How did you discover that in those days? I think that um, I think I discovered it from my little sisters. I have two really cool little sisters, and when I was, say, a senior, Donna was a she's my middle sister was a sophomore, and then Jamie would have been in you know eighth grade middle school. So Donna was even more ahead of anything, and she was she was definitely you know a four mother, I guess not a forefather of, of the rave scene. And we did things together and we had some similar friends. And so she was a part of this culture and this scene. And I was definitely interested in it. And so I started. Oh, I, I, I'm sorry. Let's pause for a second because it just occurred to me that the rave scene is 100% our generation. And um, we probably need to define what that is um, for the listeners. Um, I, I know a lot of millennials probably raved in the later years of the rave scene, but for the listeners, Jill, can you explain what a rave is or what the rave scene was? Ooh, I don't know if I'm going to do my best at explaining it because I haven't thought about it in so long. I'll, what, I'll fill in the blanks. Yeah. <laughs> we'll tag so team. Basically, basically, a rave was a, a giant party centered around music, DJed music, electronic music. And the parties often um, were located in venues that were abandoned or not necessarily legal. Sometimes they were. So um, I think the original ones, you know, really you'd be getting a ticket the day of, you'd be paying something to cover the costs of the DJs and this and that. Um, but it became a little more commercialized over time where you were buying tickets that were more organized or you could buy them a week or a month in advance or whatever. But originally it would just be, you know, a party in an abandoned warehouse. And it was like everyone who knew about it would, um, you know, pay and, and they were promoted at a very organic level, right? Like you're not hearing about this on the radio. It's just literally word of mouth and flyers to people who we think would would go. And, and a huge part of rave culture, I feel like also was taking ecstasy, although many other drugs were involved, but these parties, they weren't just a party from like 10 to midnight. It was more like a party from midnight till 6am with a after party, you know, to dance and come down from the drugs. And, um, a lot of it was about dancing and a lot of it was about love and a decent amount was about drugs (laughs) 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 with the drugs of course came you know a um, lot of love and a lot of appreciation for that music I was gonna say some financial and security like maybe uh you know some I want to say violence like not violence but you know, things being stolen or broken as you do when people are carrying money or carrying drugs. So, right. Yeah. So, um, the, so the, the rave scene was completely foreign to me coming from Joshua tree, California, because I wasn't, when, when I'd go to LA, it was to go to the beaches. It was to go to like Hard Rock Cafe or like the malls or see my family. So it wasn't like we ever went to clubs or did any of that kind of stuff. So when I met people like you and Kate and DJ Dave Sky and, um, you know, all of these folks that were from the East Coast, because the great Kate was from New Jersey, um, and uh, Dave Sky was from Boston. You had Ben Schmen, who was from Chicago, who was a house DJ. Like you all brought this completely different music to my world, and it blew my mind. Because do you remember what I looked like when you met me? Yes. <laughs> Why don't you tell the listeners what you remember of that style? <laughs> <laughs> 
this was a very earthy person. Um, <laughs> I love it. Crunchy and granola, as they might say. This was, this was a person that may or may not have had, you know, Birkenstocks and armpit hair and <laughs> always a concern for the environment, which is wonderful. And I think that's my first, my first Trish memory. Am I on there? Am I on? There? Oh my gosh. Yeah. And I thought you were going to say may or may not have showered or deodorant <laughs> because that would have been on par as well. Yes. Yeah. Energy for heating the water and water. <laughs> So crispy and crunchy. Oh my God. Granola. I, I mean, granola was like my life force. So that used to be the, the, the term that people would give um, us nineties hippies were granola. And so it tickles me pink that that's how you um, remember meeting me. And, um, and, and I loved it because we couldn't have been from two different worlds, but we shared the exact same philosophies of life, which was so cool because when I met you, you had bleached blonde short hair and you wore these like tiny little baby doll tops and these fat trousers, which I also had fat trousers, but it's because we wore them as hippies. And so it was like a really easy transition for me to just sort of be like, "Hmm, I kind of like that style. I might just dress more like that. And, but you're, you know, instead of Birkenstocks, y'all were wearing like um, you know, Adidas and these trainers, quote unquote, is how you guys used to call them, um, that I just really loved it. And so you took me to my first rave. Do you remember that at all by chance? A, a bit, a bit. Yes. And Angelica went too, correct? I Now that part, I don't think that's true because oh, there, wow. I think it was you and me. And, um, so you always knew these really cool Phoenix kids Oh yes. and was- yeah, they, they were graffiti artists. They were skateboarders. They were, um, you know, MCs, like they were just, I could not, I mean, you gotta understand that, like I was listening to the grateful dead and like Nirvana and like the cranberries. And then here's this whole other side. That's like, you know, just so, it was just so different. It was like a whole different culture. And, um, and one of, one of them was in the back seat of your red, um, station wagon. And I believe, I don't know if it was Craig that was driving, but we, um, we went to a warehouse party in Phoenix and I'll never, I won't ever remember the name of that one. Um, because the one <laughs> with Angelica was called Above, and that was oh, okay. right. And I think that's the one that Dave Sky had had sort of right. there. But no, this one was like it was insane to me. For me, right? For you, I'm sure it was like this is lame. Well, actually, I should have just another Saturday night, <laughs> <laughs> right? You're like, come on, kid, we got you. But it was like um, I think I rolled in with some dreadlocks. And everyone else had like these facial piercings and, you know, these fuzzy, you know, pants and just there were glow sticks and lights and fashion is a whole different thing. I kind of forgot about that. Yeah. So it wasn't really just about the music and love, was it? Like definitely this whole like clothing style and these giant, ridiculously huge jeans and like, you know, if your jeans weren't big enough. And what were you even doing? You just didn't look right. Like, um, and there were Kangle caps and there was like definitely short hair a lot. Although there was some long hair and bleached hair, definitely more on the West coast, but both. And, um, they, yeah, lots of piercings. And I'm trying to think here, backpacks, small shirts, big pants. Oh, um, and, and definitely like little trinkets that people would put on their backpacks. Like I, I know when I, when I fell into the rave scene, cause I just fucking fell in love, um, because of that rave. I, I mean, I pretty much brushed out my dreads, chopped all my hair off pierced my face. Like I went hard. I don't know if you remember, but I was just like, yeah, hippies are cool. Let's rave. (laughs) You're great because A, you have an open mind towards all different 
peoples and cultures, but B, like you also like have this love of dancing that is like oh, the perfect yeah. combo because rave music, um, you know, think what you will about it, but if you want to dance, it will not let you down. Like it yeah. will keep you going all night. There is no missed opportunity there. And usually there'd be different rooms with different styles. So you could, you know, go into one room for your hard dancing or your favorite DJ and then go in the chill out room to like hang out and relax with someone and unwind. I absolutely loved that part of the warehouse raves as opposed to the outdoor raves because um, you could have a jungle DJ that was flown in from another country or, you know, a house DJ that was flown in from another part of the um the, of the States. And, um, if you got bored in one room or let's say like DJs changed and maybe it went from jungle to happy hardcore. Cause I remember that happening to me and right, right. hated happy hardcore. It was like, <laughs> <laughs> like it was just so hard. And like, um, there, there was, it wasn't a, like a fat beat. That's P H A T listener. Fat. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, and like, and you're right. Like even cause after a while I ended up deciding that I wanted to be a sober raver because I was so concerned about the safety of you all. And I thought someone's got to be the designated driver and I'm, I'll do it because drugs, I can take them or leave them. Like it's, they're fun and all, but they're exhausting as well. And so, um, and so I found myself still able to dance for hours at a time to the, this music. And to me, I felt like it was, our generation's answer to like Woodstock and things like that. Only it was every fucking weekend. <laughs> right. right. And, it, and it was definitely, it was really special and um, it was a lot of fun. And you became like a certain type of friend with someone when you spend, when you would rave with someone, you would spend like, you know, 20 hours together for sure. You know, it was everything from, you know, from dancing, sweating, you know, sleeping, nourishing yourself, like uh, you, you really had these intense sleepover experiences with people when you were doing it and you became fast friends at the time. And yeah. And, and one of the reasons why we just always thought of you as the Mac uh, is because you, you did have such a, an amazing ability to connect with people. Actually, I'm going to ask you, Jill, where in the world did Jilly Mac come from? Uh, it's not that great of a story. I work. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's just whatever. I was a lifeguard at this local beach in Connecticut, and um, there was this guy there called Doc, and his girlfriend. Um, God, I, and I'm, I can't believe it. I can't remember her nickname, but her real name was Nicole. Well, so Doc and Nicole had nicknames for everyone. And I was new on the scene and they're like, well, you need one. Your name's Jill. And you scored these two dudes recently. So you're a Mac. So you're Jilly Mac. Oh <laughs> no, honestly, Jill, that's exactly the story I wanted to hear. <laughs> I tried to like shift it when I studied graphic design and be like, I rock the Mac. I use the Macintosh for my design or like my initials are JMK and um, you know, Jilly Mac has a JM and a K in it. So like, I just liked it. And it's also really fun to say, even my mom started calling me Jilly Mac, you know? Yeah, no, it is, it is fantastic. And you know, it's funny because you are one of, it, it might've even have been you that's that first called me Trish the dish, but there's kind of a blurry area there because it was also around the time that Kevin Smith came out with Mole Rats and Shannon Doherty's character was Trish the Dish. Oh, loved it. Yeah, but also too, Trish the Dish is just such a, actually, now that I'm saying that, it's so, so common to rhyme those two. I think there was a boy, yeah, there was a boy in my sixth grade or fifth, fourth grade. He used to sing this song he hated me he was so mean he'd oh, say no. trish the dish dead in a dish that doesn't even exist or oh it's no. trish the fish it was trish the fish anyway do you need to make a new cocktail because i do do you want to pause for a second sure. okay i'll be right back don't touch anything
Okay, everybody, my name is Michael E. Cohen II, and with me is Matthew Haas. We are the co-hosts of the All Too Real 2 podcast. On All Too Real 2, we uh, tackle pop culture topics uh, such as watching and reviewing uh, direct-to-DVD sequels. We review any and every all direct-to-video movies of all time. That we review so you don't have to. We also cover uh, pop culture topics, you know, like the history of Halloween, misconceptions, and things of that nature. Very educational and entertaining. And we've just started doing interviews with uh, people from uh, Hollywood and uh, people from pop culture, such as Larry Hankin, which we just interviewed recently, who you know from Seinfeld and uh, Friends and Billy Madison, among other things. So uh, where can they find our podcast, Matt? They can find it at iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and any other place that you can find podcasts on. Just tune in and enjoy. All right. So um, as we continue to drink our cocktails, for me, it's only Mm -hmm. it's not even noon in Arizona. (laughs) What time is it in Connecticut? 1.48 p.m. Day drinking. Cheers. Cheers, mate. Cheers. Um, Bird. No, I'm just kidding. Anyway, um, it's it's so anyway. Long story short, the rave scene was just what 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 a moment! What a moment in history um, and time. And and you know, and by the way, when we say electronic music, yeah, it was electronic music, but it was still being spun on techniques or whatever record players because they were literally right. still vinyl. And so yeah. when people um, talk about collecting vinyl. I'm always like, yeah, but we were collecting vinyl in those days too. At least our DJ friends were like Ray Love had a whole bunch of records and obviously the other DJ kids that I had mentioned and, um, right. So I I just think it's cute. I don't know how many people you knew that were DJs, but (laughs) it seemed like every, every five people I knew was a DJ or just starting to be. I was going to say a lot, (laughs) Um, but yeah, they would have to bring a truck to unload the vinyl, right? Like you can't really just fit it in the back of your sedan type thing necessarily. And, and they had really cool messenger bags too. So sometimes what, um, what guys would do or girls, but mostly they were guy DJs back then, at least in Phoenix is they would just show up at a party or uh, a rave or the after party in hopes that they could jump on the tables because, oh, I just happen to have eight records in my backpack or my messenger bag. Yes. It was really, a, it was a force. Like you have to imagine that these parties and they would be in terrible parts of town, right? Like that was always a concern. And I was going to them in the beginning in, in New York or in the Bronx, they seemed to always be. And um you know, you'd be taking this train and you'd be in this area and you you would wonder if you were going to, you know, leave the night alive. And, um, and in Phoenix, it was a different situation. You would drive there, but, you know, you would come out and sometimes the cars would be um, vandalized or whatever. There was definitely issues um, with the places they had. and But there would be hundreds of kids showing up and the hundreds of kids showing up you know, it was this subculture and they would be from all over, right? Like people like me would be traveling from Flagstaff an hour to go to it or, you know, um, from Connecticut to New York and people would come from all over to hear the DJ that they love. But, um, but also it was a risk, you know, it wasn't like just showing up for a concert that's over in two hours. You're there usually for eight hours. And they would come. <laughs> You're committed. <laughs> You'd be in this place with these hundreds of people from all over for eight hours. And like, you might end up sitting next to somebody like, and not able to find your friends. And you would like really share this experience with them and you might never see them again, or you would, but um, it was just so different than anything that's happened before or since really, you know? Uh, Yeah, definitely. Um, So one of the neat things that happened to both of us was, and, and I don't know if you remember the night that you kind of decided, had this epiphany, but we both decided that we were going to leave Flagstaff and, and we were going to go to Europe and the UK for a year abroad. 
Hell yeah. Yeah. And so you went a year ahead of me. You had asked me to go with you to the UK, but I was so terrified. So I think I got weird and was like, ah, and then ended up going to France, which is 10 times harder um, the year after. <laughs> but um, what was it like moving to London in the 90s, having come from this super specific fashion, music kind of world that you were in. Oh, because we used to nickname you the Rave Queen. Oh, boy. Yeah, which I, I don't feel that I really deserve. Well, but, in um, Flagstaff, though, you were you were the Mac. Come on now. Okay, in Flagstaff, in Flagstaff for sure. Um, it, was, it was so interesting. So, like, you know, England started doing raving before we did. So they were already, like, they had moved on already, you know, and, and it was – and it, they had moved on in Connecticut, New York, too, but it was still, like, emerging again in Arizona. So I got to, like, really enjoy that, you know? When I moved to Arizona and it was starting there and I got to be a part of something new, like, I got to be a queen there. I didn't get to be that in Connecticut or New York, you know? That was freaking fun. And it was just lucky, you know? But then I moved to um, London and and that was old news and that was fine. Like, it was, it stayed, it, like, you know resonated in all these different things that never went away but it wasn't actual rave so much anymore it was like really strong club scenes with different flavors of djs and different nights that were world famous you know and um the people who had been into that were doing that and then the fashion was just so different it was wild like definitely it didn't take me long to like start wearing bell bottoms as opposed to just 100 percent giant jeans but I don't think anyone else was really even so into that, but I couldn't bring myself to wear anything skinny. And there was, Europe was so funny. That was the time of like Spice Girls and platform sneakers. Yes, it was. Yes. <laughs> and I was, I was more than happy to like start wearing various platform shoes, you know, that. Me too. Yeah. <laughs> I loved my platform sneakers. I thought they were so dope. And so then it went to more of a Jamiroquai twist, yeah. right? Or like... <laughs> Cold as hell there. So like you need your trainers to do a lot of walking and platform boots work fine too. But, um, but like you really need to stay warm. So next thing I'm wearing these giant fur jackets all the time and all the fake fur, of course, and you know, umbrellas everywhere. Um, but yeah, it was definitely a whole different situation. The pants, pants and dress scene was strong. I was really, really into that skirt and dress over a pair of tight pants. Oh, that was like definitely my thing. That. Yeah. that was my favorite yeah. way to dress, but I was already doing that in the States. Cause I always had these like weird little oh, yeah. hippie dresses that I would wear over my fatties. Actually, you, that picture you sent of me when we went to Seattle, that I think that was one of the outfits because I know that little dress in that sh in that picture, it was one that I particularly wore over these maroon fatties. It's weird because I don't even remember what I did yesterday at noon, but I can tell you what I wore in 1996. That's so weird. <laughs> That's so cool. Yeah, what is that? That long-term memory with the poor short-term or whatever, I don't know. Maybe there really are pin size holes in our brain, Trish. Yeah, well, you know, we did rave, Jill. We did rave. Um, so, okay, so then, you know, you, you know, you, uh, you decide that you're gonna leave Flagstaff, like you said. You go to New York, and then you decide to leave New York. So, tell us, tell us about how you got to um, Austin, Texas. So that was, that was definitely a surprise. Although, you know, going to Arizona was a surprise too. So I'm in New York and 9-11 has happened and I have this job at a nonprofit doing graphic design and I was never happy doing graphic design at any of these um, dot coms that I worked at. It, they were cool jobs, but I never felt satisfied or fulfilled. I never felt like I was good at what I was doing. And, and this dot com, it felt like I was like working all the time and producing very average stuff. And meanwhile, there's firefighters trying to put out this fire from the actual, you know, explosion of the Twin Towers and the implosion of them. And it just wasn't going away. It's like I got this job in January and it had happened in September and there was still smoke coming from where the towers were for 
it felt like weeks to months and it was depressing as hell to ride my bike. I rode my bike to work often in those days and I would ride by the smoke and, and the fire people and, um, my office ashes came crashing in through the vents one day, like black ashes on my desk. And I was thinking, oh, there's dead people in these ashes and there's asbestos and chemicals. And, you know, New York City was giving out free um, HEPA, you know, air filters and vacuums to all its residents. And I qualified and I got my, you know, HEPA vacuum, which I held. I still have the air purifier here at the office. That's so funny. Um but anyway, so I was getting, I was developing this anxiety after 9-11, but I was also developing this dissatisfaction with my chosen career, right? I made it through college. I've got the job. I've got a salary. It's barely, you know, I'm barely surviving. I'm stressing about rent every month. And, um, and then there's these rumors every week that we're going to be attacked again. And I was falling for it. I was really caught up in that. I was like, oh, we've got a tip. They're going to invade New York this weekend. And like, yeah, my it was, it was like, they were always changing the mm-hmm. the color from amber yeah. to orange, like these alerts yeah. that would keep going. And it was, yeah, it was, a, it was, a, it was a terrifying time to live in the city. Yeah. I was definitely feeling stressed and anxious. And, um, I just decided that I needed to do something that made me happy. I needed to work with people. I had done a lot of contracting, like construction work for my dad, and I knew that when I built things and I demolitioned things, at the end of the day, I could say, here's what I accomplished and I feel good. You know, and you see the job completed, you see something torn down, you see something built and you feel like at the end of the day, you did something. I wanted to do something where I helped people and I felt good at the end of the day. And I wasn't sure what that was going to be. So I went at first, I thought maybe teach English as a second language because I love traveling. So I actually took an English as a second language teaching class at the new school. I volunteered at a refugee project in Midtown, at the Victims of Torture program at Bellevue, and at a Chinatown library. And um, then, and I applied for some of those programs, and I applied for a fellowship for teaching in New York City. I was like, well, if I could get a master's paid for, then I could teach anywhere. And um, I think I didn't get into the programs I applied for, but during that period, I thought, you know, massage therapy, I would love. Oh, and during the rave days, do you remember this, Trish? I was really into shiatsu and I would do these face massages and hand massages. Chill. To this day, day, when I am trying to swoon a, a new lover, uh-huh. I give them face massages and I, that is okay. Yeah. We have to pause for a second because massages, I know it sounds those that are like familiar with like the stereotypical, like ecstasy parties and people rubbing on each other. See for us, it wasn't like necessarily intercourse. It was about what you're saying, like massage. And we would, we would just sit around massage, massaging each other. We learned acupuncture pressure and clove and I is specifically, you know, whenever she'd get a headache, she just passed me her hand and I would find the acupressure point and rub it out for her. And (laughs) that sounds dirty, but, (laughs) 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 but you're right. I totally, you were the one that taught us that. I forgot about that. Yeah. I feel like Craig too, like somehow during that time I got Shiatsu book, and I started doing like self shiatsu, and then I started doing it on other people. But also, even as a little kid, I used to massage my mom's back all the time, and I used to really get into it and make these patterns and these routines. And I, I like literally really enjoyed it and could do it for a long period of time. Probably great for my mom, right? So I was thinking in New York, I'm like, well, massage doesn't take that long to go to school for. It's not that expensive. Maybe I could do that and I'd be doing something that helps people that I could feel good about at the end of the day. So I started researching massage schools while I'm on my computer at this office down by Ground Zero, right? And um, it sends me to this website. I think it was called like, God, what was it called? Health, not health props. Well, anyway, this website was like the mother load of, all massage, acupuncture, and naturopathic programs maybe in America. And I'm that type of person. I'm over analytical where I was like, 
well, who knows where I want to live? Who knows where I want to go to? You know, nothing was out of the question. I wasn't convinced I had to go to massage school in New York. I thought maybe California, who knows? Maybe Hawaii. Um, So I start researching that. And then the school in New York that was closest to my office had acupuncture as well as massage. And I thought, oh God, that would be amazing. But my, my first thought was, oh, I'm not qualified to do acupuncture like that. You probably need more science or medical background or whatever is what I don't know. I didn't, I don't know why I had that thought, but that was the thought I had. And then of course, because I'm over analytical, I researched it and I was like, oh, I actually have all the requirements for it. I could do that. And then that took me down the rabbit hole of well, what if I did acupuncture and massage in a different state? And that took me down the rabbit hole of, you know, California has the highest amount of hours required and whatever, maybe Minnesota has the lowest. And I was like, you know, I think I, if I'm going to do this, I want to get the highest level of training because I'm a, a bit of a vagrant and I don't know where I want to live and I only want to do this once. So I thought I'd just go to a school that offered the highest level of training so that I could live in California or New York and not have to retest or re-go back to school. And so California was the highest. And I looked at a lot of schools there. I thought about Hawaii. And then Texas had the same requirements as California, but it's a hell of a lot cheaper to live there. And people were talking about Austin like it was so great. Nobody doesn't like it. And my little sister Jamie was living there. So I was like, well, in this one school there, it looks so perfect. They're like, we train our students to do, you know, shiatsu or Chinese tuino massage. They do qigong therapy. They do nutrition. Um, they do acupuncture and herbal medicine. And I was like, yes, I want all those things. <laughs> yes. I'm going to that one. And, and sideline, it had to start after I lived at the ashram doing the yoga teacher training. <laughs> Wait, so like, you did that? I don't know if I remember I that or not. Yeah, I signed up for that. For, I had also gotten really into yoga at um, NAU and I decided I was, I just went crazy. I think I was having a breakdown in New York City and I was like, I'm changing my life. And um, first I signed up for the ashram and then I was looking at what to, what the next step would be. Hey, you um, know, do you think, because... 9-11 kind of shook me too, where uh, I don't know if you remember, but when I moved there from London via Paris, um, I went Paris, London, and New York. Cause that was like, I don't know. That was the coolest fucking thing ever to do ever in a period of like a year. Um, but 9-11 happened and I was working at Christian Dior as a receptionist, making more money than I ever saw in my life just sitting at a desk being pretty and answering a phone, which is not my personality. I never thought it was pretty or wanted to just act like I was. Do you know what I mean? Um, I bet you're very cute with that makeup, especially. Oh, you're so sweet. But yeah, that was like the first time I ever wore makeup and <laughs> stuff like that. Incidentally, I still to this day have all of my Christian Dior fingernail polish Really? And I, and I still use it. That's how good that stuff is. That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, some of the colors are a little outdated, but I mean, it's really hard for me. I can't throw it away, Jill. I don't know what's wrong with me. But anyway, um, but so 9-11 happened. And for me, I wasn't allowed to leave the building. My listeners have already heard the story. You know the story. But so I won't go down that. Um, but uh, something happened to me. I chopped all my hair off. I went and worked at a coffee house. I was like, fuck the system, fuck corporate America, even corporate France. And, um, I was like, that's it. Like I, I can't play this game anymore. Do you feel like that kind of happened to you as well after nine 11? Like before pre nine 11, you were just kind of like humdrum doing the thing. And then 9-11 happened and you were like, wow, we're fucking mortal and I need to get my shit together and do what I want to you know do. What? Yes. I've never thought about it in those exact terms, Trish, but that is totally what happened. And also, like, you know, it wasn't as clear as that at the time, of course, but like I had one of the biggest anxiety attacks of my life. I think it was before 9-11 and then 9-11 just made this worse. So there was the compiling of that that big job I had that was like lost as the economy tanked and they laid people off kind of like COVID really and um, right. the, that, dot, the dot com bubble 
Yeah. And I got my unemployment and I felt like on top of the world that I was getting this money and not having to work. That was cool. And then that ended though. They give you a time period and I didn't have a plan B and like the reality of the rent literally I've never experienced anything like it. It was like my whole body went numb and I couldn't, I couldn't like see or walk or steer, you know, it was wild. But anyway, so that I got better from, but it was kind of like a beginning point. And then nine 11 happened. Yeah. I I'm surprised I didn't recover better. And, and it sounds like you didn't either because I know so many people in New York who weathered it, you know, so well, but it made me want to leave. It really did. Yeah. Well, I, you know, for me, I lasted, you know, I lived in total in New York city for 10 months and, and I always joke that it is the most epic 10 months of my whole fucking life because, you know, uh, well, fuck, we would stay out till like three in the morning and then I'd have to wake up at five to get to work or six to get to work uh, at Dior in time. And, um, and, and we were just partying all the time. And then I feel like when nine 11 happened, it was just so sobering and yeah, no, I didn't, I didn't recover. As a matter of fact, Jill, I refused to talk to people about nine 11 because after I left New York, that's all anyone ever wanted to ask me about when they found out that I had moved from New York. Um, and, and that I was there during line 11, like I didn't talk about it for like a decade. Like I didn't want to talk about it. I didn't want to fucking post about it. I didn't want to see your American flags because it was such PTSD because I was homeless. I don't know if you know this, but I, I or if you remember, but I went from Dior to Angelica's apartment in Brooklyn because I just wanted to make sure she was safe. I felt, you know, because she was so much younger than us. Well, I mean, right. five years, but in those days it felt like she was a baby and I promised her mom I would take care of her when she was in New York. And, um, and like just seeing the towers smoldering from the, you know, Brooklyn side and the, the, the train station being bombed and all the, all the things. And I was homeless because I didn't have an ID that said that I lived in that apartment in Chinatown. It still said right. my Flagstaff address, actually Kate's address. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And so it was, yeah. So I pretty much moved. Oh gosh. I moved in with Johnny and Laurel in Harlem like a month later. Like, and then I was out, I was out by March. Like, and I never, I've never been to New York since Jill ever. It's changed and not, not for the better really, but I mean, I, I still love it, but now I don't get reminiscing like, Oh, I want to go back. And not that New York isn't great. It is great, but man, was it great before. Let's yeah, just say that. it was. Now that we are at the end of the podcast, Jill, and I want to say yeah. also to just super good luck to you and that I love you so much. I'm going to start with your with the rapid fire question segment of my podcast. Are you ready? I guess. Woo. I didn't know about that. Oh, yeah. Okay. So I'm going to ask you um, a series of questions you're going to answer really quickly. And um, are you ready? I want to preface this by saying I'm not a fast thinker, but let's go. Hey, I emailed you these fucking questions, Jill. What the fuck? <laughs> You know what? I almost, I almost texted you. Just, oh my God. just, just study the fucking questions, Jill. But oh my God. This is so, this is so chill. If you, if you hadn't, if you hadn't just said that, then I would think you were broken. So I'm so happy that you said, "Oh, I didn't know there were questions." <laughs> okay, Jill, you ready? Here we go. Yes. What is your favorite memory from childhood? Oh, I do remember these questions. Um, you know, this is so weird. I fainted one time and my mom, I woke up and my mom was rubbing my belly with her cool hand and it felt so good. And I just remember being so cared for. Oh, what's your favorite 80s band or musician? Oh gosh, there's not one, but Talking Heads was a big one. I love David Byrne and um, I love you know, we're on a road to nowhere or yeah. mama had a little baby, stay up late. Yeah. What about your favorite eighties film? I'm, you know, I am a diehard Goonies fan, but princess bride is yes. big. And I, 
I love all those corny love stories like Can't Buy Me Love and Breakfast Club. And God, there's so many. Um, What made you go to college? My parents. (laughs) 100% of Gen Xers say my parents. That's so funny. Um, So, um, oh, what was your favorite band or musician as a teen? I'm such a Pixies fan. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, Pixies. All the way. Um, And see, listeners, this is why Jill is the fucking coolest human on the planet. No offense to my other guests, but I'm sorry. I have known her for like, you know, over 25 years. Okay. And Jill, finally, last but not least, if you could give a bit of advice to any generation listening, because we do have from boomers to Gen Z listening, um, either to get through the dark times or just life advice in general, what would that be? Oh, this is, this is a tough one. Um, I think to be grateful for what you have, but to never give up on, you know, if you're not happy, never give up on finding your happiness. I have so many patients and, and friends who, you know, they're like unhappy where they are, but they're unwilling to try going on a vacation for two weeks somewhere (laughs) or moving or, you know, going to school for something different. Like sometimes you have to totally change your life and it's scary. But if you make a leap of faith, you have the potential to totally succeed and be happy, but it takes giving up everything you love sometimes. And that's what happened when I studied acupuncture it's easier said than done but so many people would be happier living you know in a different climate or you know be brave and try it that's what I say you only live once I love that Jill because as you know that's pretty much the way I've lived my life (laughs) and you too well Jill thank you so much for taking time out of your busy life to be on the podcast thanks Trish for having me it was an honor Thanks for listening. And if you think this is worth listening to, please subscribe, share, and leave a review. Be kind to each other, listen to each other, and let's stop being separated by our differences. I don't want to be an army one.